Awesome. So uh, I know that the rest of the folks are not uh, able to, I mean, I'm not able to see you or hear you, uh, the attendees, but um, I just want to welcome you um, to our second Talabat Tech Talks. And we're um, so honored to have Chris and Austin with us. And uh, Chris and Austin are uh, hosts of the Mob Mentality Show, which is a video cast that they learn so much from. Uh, they touch upon all topics related to mob programming and surrounding teams around mob, um, mob programming. And I got to learn um, a lot from the conversations that they had with their guests. So if um, you happen to um, uh, not follow the Mob Mentality Show, I strongly, strongly recommend uh, to check it out. And um, yeah, today's session is going to be um, led by Chris and Austin, and um, they had in mind the um, session where we get to ask them about the topics that we are interested in and the things, the burning questions that we might have um, related to more programming. And um, yeah, they'll um, get to, we'll get to figure out the ways to, I mean, we'll, we'll get to vote on the questions and um, um, talk about the ones that uh, tend to be um, most popular. Um, so yeah. Uh, without further ado, thanks again, Chris and Austin, for joining us today, and I hand it over to you. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, so I'm Chris Lucian. Uh, Austin Chadwick is uh, with me here as well. And uh, so what we're going to do is um, we're going to start talking a little bit about, uh, you know, high quality, high release frequency, psychological safety, and then, uh, and, and, you know, then basically open it up to questions in the Q&A section. Um, in the Q&A section in Zoom, you have the ability to vote on other questions that you like. So please pay attention to that. And uh, and you can also comment on those so you can give a thumbs up. I see a, a really good question there already that I really want to answer right away. But I'm going to give a little bit of time for people to kind of add questions and uh, and and vote for things. And, and I'm gonna uh, basically screen share a video uh, while we kind of start the conversation and uh, and then we'll we'll kind of go into to that. So um, uh, first of all, I'm gonna just kind of share Hi. this, uh, which is a, a, a short video of our environment uh, before we went remote. Uh, this was in 2016. And uh, while we do that, um, maybe Austin, you know, uh, what what are your thoughts on uh, on high psychological safety in a software development environment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I appreciate that, Chris. So while you guys are adding your great questions, and I already see a bunch coming in, which is I'm excited to get to. Yeah, we'll kind of hit quickly high quality, high release frequency, and high psychological safety. So yeah, regarding high psychological safety. Uh, so for me, I came from a, a background that was not uh, mob programming. And then we started to tinker with it and experiment with it a little bit. And then once I joined the environment you're seeing on the screen, uh, where it was uh, mob programming uh, all day long, in person for a while, then remote, uh, I saw a huge jump in psychological safety. And I think uh, one, one reason is that it's just it's, it's uh, very natural and human to have higher levels of psychological safety, which is where you share your full self, you share your opinions, you share your concerns, uh, you grow in your ability to give uh, radical candor to each other where you're kind, but also direct, you know, and uh, uh, giving feedback to each other or feedback on the code. And I think a big reason that it comes with uh, mob programming often, uh, mob programming is not a panacea that will solve all problems and it always works, but why it works often, at least in my experience, is that you just become really good friends with the people you're working with. You know, uh, you experience uh, the code together, you experience interactions with the customers and stakeholders together. Um, it's natural to ask what someone thinks about something or uh, to affirm, to agree with what they say, or to ask questions about it if you have uh, concerns, or to say, you know, I think uh, the, the thing I love the most is let's just try it. You know, uh, most often, I think the kind of the context of this environment is it's with uh, software. And the nice thing about that is it's pretty easy to try most things. And so I think that really boosts psychological safety is when someone has an idea and you're like, let's try it. Let's see how it works. Um, how about for you, Chris? 
Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, I just would define psychological safety as the ability to give feedback and and not fear retaliation from the individual. Um, maybe that's the only thing I would add. Um, yeah. And then maybe, you know, just talking about uh, mob programming at high release frequency very quickly um, for kind of our intro topics. And we can dig more into these as you have questions. But, um, you know, one thing that we noticed is that when when we were all working separately, uh, you know, every card took a lot longer to do. And, and when we started working together, we were our release frequency kind of naturally went up. We were able to, to just uh, essentially get everything out of the way, um, release, you know, very quickly. And, um, and we got, a, a, you know, the, the quality side of it allowed us to do that. Um, and, and one thing was, is that with everybody kind of reviewing the code all at the same time, while building out the code, uh, there was there's very little refactoring that needed to happen. And so I will turn that off now. And that video was on YouTube and I saw a question out there for where you can get it and I'll link it as soon as I can. And, um, you know, so, so we implemented continuous integration, continuous delivery uh, very quickly as part of, uh, of the natural kind of cadence of the group because, we, we found that things that were uh, very um, short to do that people did manually, like maybe you know deploying to a staging environment, that became painful for, pe for people to do. And we automated it and we saved quite a large amount of time where uh, I think it would have been less likely that we would have automated something like that had everybody been working by themselves again. And Austin, uh, maybe I'll kick it off to you for high quality and then we can get into some of these great questions. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll add a little bit on the high release frequency uh, going from a non-mobbing environment to the one that was. And so I joined a team, a, a mob, an ensemble that was doing uh, a language I had never worked in. But uh, we, my first day, I jumped in. I was learning that language. I was contributing to the thinking and the problem solving. And we released production the first day. And that blew me away compared to other environments I've been in. <laughs> And so I agree that there's tends to be a high correlation with uh, high release frequency in, in my programming. And in regards to quality, another kind of before and after moment for me was I came from an environment where, uh, you know, the people were trying really hard. Uh, they were learning, you know, pretty decent quality practices. But for whatever reason, we had, you know, in the hundreds of bugs that we were fixing or, you know, carrying through month to month. And, uh, and then when I came into this environment, uh, it, like before, it's not perfect. Um, there have been times where the bug frequency was higher, but definitely orders of magnitudes way lower. Um, I think it fits uh, kind of what uh, Arlo Belshi calls the hashtag uh, bug zero, where uh, it's literally zero or it's kind of like, oh, yeah, we did have a bug last month, but we fixed it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's done. You know, it's in that really low quality. And so, yeah, uh, since I've been doing it, it's been long stretches, I think about a year, year and a half where uh, the bug reports were incredibly low, if not zero. And so, um, yeah, so very excited about that. And I think uh, one reason why it might be so uh, with my programming is maybe going back to a Deming quote that I don't have in front of me. So I'm going to paraphrase it and not quote mm -hmm. it exactly, but uh, basically saying inspection is too late for quality, right? Uh, you want to build quality into the product. And that kind of statement always puzzled me before because I'm like, well, every type of QA I know of is always inspection. What, what would you possibly mean by building quality in? And then after doing uh, mob programming and often combining it things with like TDD, uh, you really see how quality is built into the product as opposed to it being, in, so to speak, inspected in afterwards. Uh, so... Yeah, is it maybe now a good time, Chris, yeah. to jump cool. to some of the questions? Yeah, let's do it. So uh, what I want to do is I want to invite the people to ask the questions to come and speak. And uh, the top two questions are actually asked by the same person. So I'm going to uh, just invite you here. I'm not going to try and pronounce names, but if you could please introduce yourself if, if you do accept the invite to talk. And uh, so I just uh, allowed for you to talk. Um, you could ask your question live if you like, or I can read it out. It's up to you. Um, yeah, do you want to go ahead? Sure. I am Joaquin Raya. Uh, it's me. I run a small team here in Talabat. And we have been trying mowing for a while. And as a manager, one of the challenges that I have 
is that it's very difficult to determine performance. Mm. And that is a blocker for evolving the careers of my of my engineers. So what would you recommend in order to solve that problem? Yeah, um, maybe I can uh, answer what we've been doing for the last, uh, I'd say, six years. Um, we actually, uh, you know, the best people to know in a mob who should be promoted is the people that they work with, right? Because they're there every day, they see the their growth and the skills. And so we actually have a promotion nominations process. And so, so essentially, people can nominate each other every month, we take nominations. And then uh, what I do is essentially a monthly histogram over time, uh, over uh, over that data, and we've used that promotion process. And, and then we basically, we take the available budget and we promote as many people as possible within that budget. Um, and people can nominate no one, so they must enter a nomination, but they can nominate. Uh, they could say that they don't want to nominate anybody because no one's ready to be promoted yet. Um, and so uh, this process has worked very well. Um, I, I always ask people, we, we always do a retrospective and redefine the promotion process as a team in a retrospective and uh, every year. And, and, and essentially we've never had a, um, a, a retrospective that was saying we should get rid of the process and change it to something else. It's always been, you know, how do we make it better? How do we make it more consistent? And so uh, it used to be end of the year nominations at the end, then it became monthly, then it became uh, you're required to enter it but monthly, but you don't you can signify that you don't want anybody there. And the data is is very robust around that. And another thing that um, you know I think managers have to have to uh, um, say why they're making the the, the promotion. Uh, one thing we do when we collect nominations is we ask for a story, an anecdotal story about why they believe that person should be promoted. And those stories accumulate over the year. And now you have two pages of material about why that person should be uh, should be promoted. And so um, that's been a really uh, great process for us. Um, does that How do you stop that from becoming a popularity contest, though? Uh, yeah, so uh, that's another good question. Um, there's a couple of things. Uh, it just depends on the size of the team, but um, a little bit of the popularity contest you, you'd actually want, right? So if somebody's really easy to work with, if they know what they're doing, if they're not dragging the team down, um, then then they probably do deserve to be promoted because they're they're pulling the team forward. Um, but I, I also think that uh, you know in a large enough team that you know I'm talking about maybe twenty people or, or so. Um, you won't you won't really see that because it, uh, especially if you're rotating people between mobs. So we do have a rule in, in our mobs that no one can stay on the same product for more than two years, um, and that kind of breaks up silos. It kind of breaks up uh, you know other things like that. But that that randomness, the moving around, you you start working with other people, and then and then people uh, nominate around that. So um, when reviewing the data. Uh, I've never seen a situation where it was like, this person is just really popular, but their technical skills aren't great because you're navigating, you're driving, you're researching when you're, when you're in a mob, it's, it's, you know, it, it very much is about how you're contributing to the mob, how you're making the mob better. And, uh, and people giving nominations undeserved would just be really obvious to the team. And that would come out uh, very quickly in retrospectives, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah right, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you had another question. It's also got the top number of votes. Um, so maybe you wanted to introduce that one um, with cross-platform work as well. It seems that I'm very popular. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, um, in Talabat, our app is a native app. So we have Android developers that are experts in their Android, Android knowledge and platform specific stuff, iOS developers with the same situation, and then backend developers. And obviously it's difficult to guarantee quality on and knowledge on all three platforms. Mm -hmm. It's very different from web development where a backend and a frontender can sort of work on each other's areas. So I would like to know how you handle that and how long is the learning curve and et cetera. Yeah, so uh, we don't 
we don't really put restrictions on technologies. Maybe Austin, you want to go ahead and answer this one. Yeah. So this might uh, jump into um, like uh, where you were going with it, Chris, was kind of the extreme ownership uh, that each team or mob has. And so, um, you know, you might join a team or an ensemble and they're already working in a particular tech stack or they've already there were some decisions made in the past. But that team, that ensemble, that mob has the ability to change anything in relation to that, you know, like the technology used, this or that, you know. And so um, often there is cross-platform work going on. So to your specific question uh, regarding Android, iOS and uh, backend, uh, I, I think we have experience directly regarding to front end and back end, but for the apps we've uh, I've ensembled in, uh, we typically use um, uh, cross um, frameworks like Xamarin or something like that, where you write it in one language and it'll transpile to both iOS and Android. But uh, I think the spirit of the question still applies is that back end, front end, any, any uh, differentiation of technology, skill, role, et cetera. So um, we definitely see that. So some people, I've been in mobs who come from a very low level programming embedded background. I've been in mobs with people who are very data centric. I've been in mobs with people who are very uh, front end. They love the front end uh, infrastructure. So those are the types of experiences I have. And the thing that I see is um, when we uh, mob together, is we start to cross train each other on each other's skills, you know. So, uh, for example, um, an area of how to do uh, infrastructure as code and uh, CI/CD pipelines was an area of fairly low knowledge for me. But after mobbing with some phenomenal people uh, who are really great in that, I learned how to research like they do, how to Google things, how to why to write the YAML like this versus not like that, you know, and. Uh, uh, and so I think uh, a pretty awesome thing comes, whether you're full-time ensembling or part-time mobbing, uh, that these people will start training the, each other naturally. And then uh, what that means is you don't have uh, uh, the bus factor, right? So if the Android guy or person goes on vacation for a month, you know, uh, development won't stop, right? Because people are cross-training, can help each other out. Uh, Chris, did you have anything else to add to that one? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great answer. Um, does that answer your question? Is that good? Uh, you're muted if... Uh, Sorry, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah the, uh, it, it doesn't really answer it in the sense of it gives me a way of solving the problem, but yeah. uh, it's close enough. So thank you very much. Yeah. So so my recommendation there when you're, when you're trying to do that is is really to just put as much uh, uh i guess control into the people uh, the people's hands who are doing the work right and 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 retrospect about it talk about you know benefits and, and detriments um but and i think as austin's saying uh, the transfer of skills happens very naturally as well right and oh, we have observed that it's just that uh, getting them to be good enough to be able to work on all three it would take so much so much time that it would be too expensive to do. But it's it's a trade-off and that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know that that is a valid concern and before ensembling. And then so I, this might come down to uh oh yeah, I'll share a link in the chat and in the show notes. Uh everything Chris and I are saying today is under the spirit of just sharing. So complex you know, uh, the software world, teams working together is very, very complex and even chaotic at times. And so it's really hard to give like hard and fast recommendations to anything. So what we can do is share from our experiences. And then what uh, you can do is maybe take that and it might result in an experiment of some kind. And what Happy I can learn. say, yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And uh, it's, it's wonderful learning from you all too. And I think what I can say is to share from my experience on that, to think if you would have asked me like eight years ago, Austin, would you be a uh, capable in this many languages, front end, back end, infrastructures? I would have thought you were crazy, right? But in a matter of a couple years, I've seen people pick up these skills. You know, people further along in their career, people at the beginning of their career, people in the middle of their career, uh, pick up these skills pretty quickly. Uh, and so, and I guess the only way you can find out is if you try in your environment, uh, because the um, 
in my experience, it's surprising how quickly people learn as opposed to how uh, slow they learn uh, as far as different, because at the end of the day, uh, what I've noticed after being in five different teams, all these different technologies and languages is there's way, there's a ton in common. <laughs> and so a lot of things uh, build on top of each other as opposed to being like completely independent areas of knowledge that have no overlap. Um, yeah. So. And maybe I'll add like one one interesting experiment. I don't know if you can try it or not, but maybe this will be a kind of a final comment. Um, is is you know get a Android and an iOS developer together, uh, maybe find somebody that knows Windows Phone still, and then have them build the feature in all three uh, side by side. And, and I think that there'll be a lot of kind of empathy and understanding built up um, because uh, what I find is the difference between frameworks is actually not that that different. Um, you know, each system has their life cycle. The life cycles are very similar, but things are different, named differently. And once people start creating an abstract language about the different technologies that do the same things, um, often it's it's very small minutia that is actually you know fundamentally different between the platforms. Um, but yeah, and, and hopefully that helps. And we can move on to our next question now. Um, <laughs> let's see. Okay, so uh, Tim, I'll allow you to talk. Uh, all right. Hi, Tim. Welcome. Uh, would you like to answer your question that has 12 votes on it? Hello. Yeah, I'm, I'm super curious to learn what were your learnings moving into this remote times? Because as we've seen in the video, you started this process probably in a, in a physical office environment. Yes. So what were your learnings and how you adjusted it to keep it effective in, in remote or maybe even, even in hybrid, hybrid modes where you have some people in the office and some people remote? Yeah, um, I have a quick story and then I'll, I'll kick it over to Austin uh, about the hybrid scenario. Um, so we, we did have people that was like, well, you know, one person in the mob was remote because, they, you know, they just kind of had to move away for, uh, you know, kind of life reasons. And uh, so we had a we actually had a monitor in that environment that you saw in the video earlier. And the monitor was on a stand and had its own computer. And basically they were essentially sitting next to us on the stand. Um, and, and that was pretty effective because, you know, as long as the person that's hybrid is on a dedicated machine that is at high level so that uh, body language still comes across, like, I'm going to go look at that person versus look at the screen. And another thing that helped was putting them uh, in a position where the monitor that they had the code on was looking away from the camera so that you knew that they were either looking at the code or looking at you when when speaking and so that was a pretty interesting hybrid example but uh, maybe Austin you can talk a little bit more about our transition to remote yeah and I can share it from my experience um, and I was going to actually share a live remote session but it doesn't really have the ability to share so maybe I'll send it to Chris and you can share it um, uh, let me grab the link I'll send this to you Chris privately over the chat real quick uh, cool um, yeah, and I think if you go about halfway through that video, Chris, and put it up on the screen, it kind of gives an idea of what it looks like in action. Uh, yeah, it is about the 11, 12 minute mark, Chris. Uh, but yeah, so from my experience, I actually came into remote uh, mobbing or ensembling pretty skeptical. I remember talking with Chris uh, before uh, about when we were doing it all in person. And uh, he asked me, well, what do you think about remote? And I'm like, ah, I just feel like it's probably not going to be as good. I know people are doing it around the world. And then uh, COVID started and uh, basically there was no choice anymore, right? So uh, I was on a, a, on a mob of three and uh, I have to admit the first day was kind of rough, um, but I, right after the first day, cause we were basically rapid cycling, trying a bunch of different ways to do it. And what we learned pretty quickly was you find your groove for whatever technologies you're working on, whatever your current setup is, uh, at home or wherever your remote office is from, getting the screens right, getting the devices set up, getting the audio video, get, figuring out your uh, mobbing technology, whether it's something like AnyDesk or TeamViewer to share a remote computer together, or if it's uh, kind of uh, the mob command line tool where you're basically switching between driver and navigator by pushing things up uh, to get um, we found our groove pretty quickly. I think the first day was kind of rough, but then day two, three, four, five, and beyond, uh, I think my brain has completely tricked me into it almost being equivalent where I turn over and look at if Chris, if I'm mobbing with Chris, 
And I see Chris Pixels, but it feels just like I'm talking to Chris in person because I see his body language. Um, we're both looking at the screen together just as we were in person. And uh, so by and large, uh, it, it feels very similar to me. And, uh, and I think your question was going back to it, uh, to keep it effective in remote times. I think the, the biggest thing to keep it effective is the same way to keep any process effective in my experience. Uh, whether it's uh, mobbing in general or remote mobbing, is that uh, continuous retrospectives, right? And so it uh, can be the end of a, a little mobbing session for an hour or two and just ask, oh, how was that? Any pains uh, to address? Any good things to turn up? And I think if you have that going and you keep refining your process, you'll find something that, that works great for everybody. I don't know, Chris, anything to add there? <laughs> yeah, I'll just say that... Um, uh, I actually view it as more effective because um, all of the things that you lose from the in-person, uh, what I've found is that uh, in, in the past, we had a very large campus and, and people wanted to favor in-person meetings over phone calls. And so I would, I would see teams waiting for people that they needed uh sometimes for hours because they were waiting for that person to be available to walk to the physical location to have that conversation in person and so um that that became always just a phone call uh and that was really beneficial to i think the flow efficiency of the team because uh people stopped waiting and there was there was less queuing time to answering important questions uh, for people that um, had other things to do across the, the company. And there was a lot less walking time between, um, between events like that, uh, because there wasn't any, right? It was instantaneous. And so um, I see, you know, I, I, I find that there are very, very tiny trade-offs for, for the in-person to remote. But I think the other way, um, being remote, uh, the queuing time for information is is much, much lower. So I, I actually personally um, think that from a flow, a lean flow efficiency standpoint, remote is actually much more effective than mobbing in person. Yeah, and I think, I think that's been true for me too, because anytime, you know, the, the thing with uh, mobbing is the whole, get the whole system in the room, right? And so in person, sometimes that's more difficult unless they're really, but once everyone's remote, there's been times where we're like, okay, we need the system in the room. And boom, we pull on this person. Oh, we discover we need this person. Boom, pull on this person. And it's like jumping geogra geographically across the world and organizations. And then you get the whole system in the room, you solve it, and that flow efficiency kicks in. Yes, yeah, so I, I think I know what you're talking about, Chris. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I think, uh, James, you also had a very similar question. It also has a high number of votes. So I just wanted to ask if you had any more to add to that. No, I, I think that that covered most of what I was curious about. I guess one other issue that I run into is um, teams on different continents. Um, mm. And we may only have half a day with some of the folks. And that leads me down the path of thinking, um, you know, how, how often do you mob? Like, does that make sense to say we're going to mob this amount of time per day? Or, you know, and how do you deal with teams that are disconnected um, so, so far by geography and time? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, I, so I have, I have two kind of comments there um, because we do have team members that are in Australia as, as well as the Pacific time zones. And so we have, we have some very uh, difficult th uh, things. So, so sometimes when they want to mob, they, they uh, you know, everybody just shifts their hours in the direction to get more overlap. Um, and then, uh, but also I, I think that if you do have like a truly global team, uh, one thing to consider is a 24 hour a day mob, um, which can, uh, you know, basically people roll on and roll off out as the time zones change or, or maybe a 16 hour mob or something like that, where, um, you know, maybe you have, you have three people that are working in one time zone and three people that are working in another and maybe during their overlap, rather than having them working separately, uh, you know, have both have all of them joined to six people and, and, share that context and then continue that context through the next, you know, six, eight hours. Um, and so those are all really, you know, um, I think interesting experiments to run. Uh, and, you know, we, we've had some success with, um, you know, basically people in the Australian time zone mobbing with people uh, in the Pacific time zone. 
um, and and bringing the code along from kind of one time zone, you know, the bulk of one time zone to the other. Um, so, so that that's actually an interesting thing to try. So, hopefully, that answers that. Yeah. Thanks. Great. And uh, Tim, did you have anything else before we move on? No. Thanks for sharing. Awesome. Great. All right. I will invite uh, Stephen in. All right, Stephen, would you like to kind of uh, announce your question? And kind of as a reminder to everybody, yeah. this is this is being recorded for uh, to be on the Mom Mentality Show as well. So just letting you know. Yeah, hello, can you hear me? Uh, yes, we can. Yeah, hi, uh, nice to meet you. And uh, Austin, thank you very much for liking one of my LinkedIn posts once. That was very exciting for me. <laughs> so this is a, a very uh, timely um, conversation today because just yesterday in my team, we were having like, uh, we have this quarterly team retreat and we talk about ways of working and how we can improve. And some of the developers were expressing some frustration about how they have to like wait for each other to collaborate, right? Like for example, the data scientists want time with the data engineers, but they're working on different things in parallel. And it's like, oh, I wish I could get more of their time. Um, and I suggested that, well, wouldn't it be great if everyone just worked together on one thing at a time? And then this way we could somehow increase the throughput. and. I think they found this kind of ridiculous um, that they would work on one thing at a time all the time. In fact, it seemed uh, obvious to them that it would be slower, that maybe you would mob sometimes for specific reasons on certain tasks where it made sense, but especially because some of them are front end, some of them are back end, some of them data engineer. Data science even is very different from other uh, uh, areas of expertise that it's clearly faster for them to work in parallel. And I kind of, you know, struggle to convince them otherwise. In fact, I'm I'm literally making eye contact with one of them right now, who's listening into this call, <laughs> um, and who and who very graciously uh, decided to join to try and be persuaded that um, that there is a better way of working, that this can increase the throughput, and that if we do collaborate, not only is it better for everyone as far as sharing knowledge, but there is in fact no trade-off as far as throughput. But you know, I have no data to show. I only have your expertise to offer as evidence. Yeah, uh, Austin, maybe you want to get get us started, and I have a comment when you're done. <laughs> sure. Yeah, this is a uh, a very rich topic that uh, could probably take up three hours of lean coffee. So uh, thank you so much for raising this. It's fantastic. But what we'll do our best to address it here. Uh, so the first thing I would want to um, put right uh, out front is uh, at least at least for me and uh, is the idea of uh, free choice and freedom and autonomy and uh, kind of leadership principles. Thank you, Chris, for recommending the book, uh, Turn the Ship Around, where you give the power to the team, you let the team decide. Because uh, I think the last, because I think what people hear with this is maybe they hear with agile transformations and other stuff is, oh, here comes something that's going to be forced on the team. And whether you like it or not, it's happening kind of deal. And so I think establishing kind of that psychological safety of, hey, you all decide how you want to work. And, uh, but with that in mind, here's some things to consider. And uh, I think to have this kind of a debate or a healthy discussion is fantastic. But when it comes to action, you make it available for those who want to try to experiment to try it so they can really try it. And it, you know, can start as an abstract discussion, but then it turns into an experiment where they can see the results and the people who want to try it get a chance to, and the people who are skeptical can watch and see how it goes, right? Um, and I think the skepticism is good. Like, I think it does sound uh, quite ridiculous. Um, I think I just sent a bunch of things in the chat that might help get the research or discussion started. But I think the big difference is kind of how you uh, started to address it is it's a big mental switch in what counts as efficiency, right? So I think up until I think a few years ago, the mental model I had of efficiency was how fast can I churn out output in my tiny little system? So if I'm a programmer, how fast am I churning out lines of code or completed tickets or those kind of things, right? And where and, and from that perspective, mob programming sounds ridiculous <laughs> because uh, you, you're taking one person churning out output to a group of people churning out output. I believe um, the exact comment was, isn't my time better spent doing something else? Right, exactly, exactly, yeah. So. Um, but uh, at least in my experience, in my context, 
me turning out output isn't directly delivering something of value to a customer or internal stakeholder, right? It has to go through uh, various people and cues and waiting and process. So this is where lean thinking comes in. What are the wastes involved in the whole system? Not just what Austin produces on his computer and sends to someone else. Uh, and I, I actually will, uh, in one of those resources, oh yeah, uh, I think I put it in there, is a link to, uh, if you're looking for data, uh, uh, Dragon Stefanovic, who uh, we've had on the show and is actually part of uh, the organizers today, has actually collected data on this uh, for, with code review um, and seeing all the waiting and queuing. And, uh, and I think the title of this thing is uh, Code Reviews Are Killing Your Company's Throughput, right? And so I think uh, to do two things, one, uh, start talking about kind of a lean thinking, uh, two, um, not just compare uh, mobbing in the abstract, but compare it with the main uh, competitor, so to speak, which is code review, right? Or some sort of process where people review each other's work. And then you look at the whole system and then think about, okay, which process is, has lower cycle time? Which process has better throughput? Which has better quality, right? So uh, if, do, do me and Chris work through a quality issue much faster when we're talking to each other? Or if I send it to Chris, he looks at it two days later, and then sends me a comment that I'm not sure what he's saying back in a few words, you know. Uh, so I don't know, Chris, anything to add there? <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, there's a really great TED talk uh, um, called The Efficiency Paradox, which talks about resource efficiency versus flow efficiency. And I think exactly what you're trying to describe here uh, with, with you and your colleagues is, uh, is directly related to that video. And it, um, it basically uh, outlines, um, you know, lean flow efficiency, and there's tons of data around flow efficiency versus resource efficiency. Um, there's a great book by the Poppendieks uh, um, called Lean Software Development. And, and the idea of lean is, you know, getting something across the finish line is much more important than keeping everybody fully utilized. And so when they're saying, isn't my time better utilized uh, um, elsewhere, uh, I, I think the answer is is yes because or is 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 no because you're in in the mob at the time, and you're getting something delivered, and so the the cost of delay for that feature getting to the to the release is actually being realized earlier, and if that feature is valuable enough, it could even mean that. Uh, you know, that person's salary, while they're just being available to deliver that feature, will be covered by that feature being released earlier in higher quality. Um, and, uh, and so um, there's also uh, kind of that ping pong ball experiment that, that we can uh, put a link out there for as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I would definitely, um, all of the metrics around resource efficiency versus flow efficiency, uh, it, there's tons of science and data because people have studied lean in manufacturing uh, you know pretty much forever now uh, at least in depth since the 60s um, and all of all of that material applies I think directly to that situation that you're talking about there um, yeah any follow-up to that Stephen um, no, no, this is uh, terrific. Um, I like the experimentation approach because I, I think people just need to experience these things for themselves, no matter how much data I even could show them. In fact, Dragon used to be a colleague of mine, and he has spoken to my team directly about these topics, and um, I'm often in touch with him and trying to channel him, but uh, I think I need to like up the ante as far as being like uh, a bit of an annoying manager and just sort of encouraging people to try these things out. I always tell them, you don't have to do this. But yeah. if you're feeling this pain, how about you try to solve the problem and remove the pain instead of keep doing things the way you're doing them? So I guess it's just like plugging away at that. I, I also think uh, dedicated learning time. So like, you know, essentially how we started mobbing in the first place and, uh, you know, before mobbing was a thing talked about, right? It, it was basically we had dedicated learning time and we were doing katas together and and they were randori katas. And so so you know, the person on the team that asked everybody to work this way uh, was saying, hey, can we work on my real work, but in that same format that we're doing driver navigator katas together. And so, uh, you know, it might just mean, you know, seven hours a week of dedicated learning time. And, and you know, it's kind of like uh, attendance is required, but participation is optional. And you just try a mob or you try TDD or you try... 
Um, those are the types of things that just naturally had had these great practices evolve within our, our group. So people had bandwidth to learn, uh, and then they had retrospectives to ratify new practices. And uh, and and that's that's how these changes happened in our environment. Um, okay, thank thank you thank you very much for that. Um, I'll see uh, I'll see what they think. And uh, Austin, I'll see you on LinkedIn. That's good. See you there. All right, uh, I'm going to uh, add another person, Amit. All right, uh, Amit, if you want to go ahead and introduce your question uh, or questions, I see there's a lot of them here, but they do have the most votes right now. Cool. So, hey, I'm Amit. I'm a software engineer at Talabat, and I enjoy mob programming. Uh, we have been mobbing together for, for the past four months, and it has been amazing. Uh, one of the challenges, you know, that I face is that you need to have a certain mindset for mobbing because sometimes when I work with specialists or let's say, for example, an iOS engineer, they might not want to sit and write a backend code because they have different career aspirations, right? So which got me thinking, you know, where the problem might lie. Would it be in the hiring pipeline? Uh, which again got me thinking, like, uh, how do you people hire, hire people, right? Do you have a separate designation for ensemble engineers? Also, does your interview pipeline or hiring pipeline vary for these mock programmers in any way? Yeah, Austin, do you want to start us off on that one? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's kind of two different things that come to mind uh, because uh, we basically have experience with both things you brought up. So one is hiring, right? And so we do have a, uh, a mob programming style interview we do so we uh for we have a group of people who love to mob and want to keep mobbing and they want to you know we want to hire people who also want to mob and so uh, we do have a hiring process for that uh so basically people will come in uh, i put a link in in the q a uh to more description of this uh kind of hiring process but the, the short version is you know uh we make it very clear in the job posting that hey, you'll be joining people who love to mob and this will be part of the interview process. And so they jump in uh, just with one person to kind of ease it in and uh, do a question, like a, a coding question, basically one-on-one, -on -one, almost like a pair, but almost like someone saying out loud what they're typing. And then it starts to ease into more and more people joining the pair and now they're a mob. And then you're working through some questions and you get to know each other. You also do some lean coffee discussions, similar to what we're doing here. Um, afterwards to get to know each other. And so that uh, the goal is for it to serve both ways, right? So uh, one, we get to experience how someone else ensembles or mobs for a few hours. They get to see what it's like in our environment. And hopefully that transparency helps to find a good match. And so, uh, yeah, so I think you can market, uh, so to speak, job positions specifically for ensembling. Um, and then two, all, uh, my goal is to put it in response to your question as well, is we do also ensemble with people already in the environments who didn't necessarily get hired with that mindset. Um, and so one example I can think of is someone who's a front end or UI UX specialist. So I'll post a video about both of us doing a talk, sharing our experiences together. But basically this person has a strong interest in that uh, specialty. So they'll come join an ensemble They'll do it for a few hours, maybe even a day or so to help solve a tricky UI UX problem. They might hang out for a little while to see like, oh, I'm interested how they uh, write a unit test for the layer right underneath that. And so they might hang out for a little bit with some curiosity, but then they'll go back and then go join another mob or another team to do UI UX work. And that's totally fine because the environment is free and they're, you know, they're willing to go and do their thing. And so, uh, yeah, anything to add to that, Chris? Uh, yeah, I'll say, um, you know, right now, uh, our, our, anybody with a specialist title in our environment, um, it, the title means that's what they learn during their learning time, but everybody still optimizes for flow efficiency. And so, uh, you know, and, and we found that we've even had people leave to, to you know, so um, in our company, we have a DevOps engineer they left to go and work on a DevOps specific team. And, and then they actually came back because they said mobbing is, is so much more effective because I, I, the DevOps metrics can't be moved without the rest of the team. And so uh, it was interesting because the, um, the result was uh, that 
um, when they're mobbing, they spend less time actually doing DevOps, but the DevOps are actually much more effective at, at affecting things like Dora metrics because uh, the, the team is available and attentive to the, the DevOps scenario, especially when, when trying to get something through a pipeline. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, specifically about whether or not people want to mob, uh, it is true over the last six years, as we grew the team from five people to 30 people, uh, we, we, we have done a mob style interview. The interview is the same for all the positions, uh, except for specialty positions like DevOps, but everything's mobbed in the sense that the interviewer, um, or sorry, the interviewee is, uh, is navigating their code. And so one thing that we make sure that people are comfortable with is uh, actually verbalizing all of the code. And, and uh, with the exception of the very first question on our interview, uh, they are programming while listening to somebody navigate them. And, and we have other interviewers who act as mobbers asking questions and things like that. Um, and so everything is kind of a mock mob uh, for, our, uh, for our work that, or for the interview that we do. Nice. Uh, maybe I can just go for one more question. I kind of, I think you people already answered the third one. So I'll take the last one. So how do you manage cross mob dependencies without upfront planning? Uh, yeah. So are you talking about from a personnel standpoint? Uh, no, from let's say a feature standpoint where you require, you know, to work with two different teams. So how do you plan that upfront? Without upfront planning, how can you really do it? Yeah. Um, so, so basically I think if there's any dependency, uh, it really is cost of delay prioritization entirely. Um, and so, and if, if the cost of delay doesn't match up, you know, say, say that, that, that another team's resources are, are um, applied to something with a much higher cost of delay than what's related to the integration, then maybe it's appropriate to defer the integration. But, um, uh, you know, I, I would just suggest, you know, from my perspective, um, we typically, uh, rather than rather than trying to plan everything up front, we get all of the dependencies out of the way first. Um, so, so for example, if there we work in uh, the IoT space, and so we have a lot of Internet of Things, and so we have firmware teams and hardware teams out there. And so, uh, what we do is we put the highest priority uh, on uh, you know first on things that are unknown, um, and so discovery type, you know, pure. Uh, to, you know, technical discovery type uh, things. And then, and then we put the second priority on everything that is a dependency. And then the third priority on, on the remaining features. And so uh, that way, everything is done as soon as possible for the de dependency. So that way you don't have to upfront plan it. You just say, where are the dependencies? Let's knock out those features first, deliver them to the dependent team. And whether or not they get to using those until much later, is fine, but they they are available already. So um, that's been my philosophy. I don't know, Austin, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great point. And I'll, uh, I'm gonna try to add a link on uh, prioritization and how that kind of works uh, in our environment. And uh, the one piece that I'll add uh, kind of from like a boots on the ground perspective is that I often see uh, your problem get solved um, because we kind of have a more dynamic reteaming environment where it's not like fixed teams and like uh, only this team can work on that and only this team can work on that. It's often the problem is solved just by inviting someone to your, your ensemble is. or mod. Uh, so for example, uh, we're about to start work. Uh, you know, we were working on something, we finished a few thin vertical slices and then boom, what comes to the next priority is this thing that everyone in the mob or ensemble really has no idea about, whether it's from a domain or tech perspective, but then you're like, oh, so-and-so in that uh, team, she knows a lot about this. Why don't we just invite her to the uh, mob? She can help build up context, help teach us a few things. Maybe that happens a few times. And it naturally works itself out because usually that person, um, let's say Sandra, uh, is in another mob. And since she's ensembling with them, they already have a good idea of the things that she's teaching. And so she can leave for a little bit and flow keeps going, right? They have enough context to keep going without it for a while. Then she can go and transfer context and knowledge over here and then go back. And so kind of having that uh, um, 
multiple people learning the different skills and disciplines and domains enables people with specific knowledge to jump around and fill the gap and keep that flow going uh, just by inviting them to come. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh -huh. All right. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Joaquin, I think you have another question there. Uh, as you said, you're very popular. So maybe you want to go and introduce that one. So this one is uh, we were running a, a mobbing experiment. And one thing that we noticed is that uh, some people arrive later, some people arrive earlier than some of them have uh, interview slots as part of our hiring process that they need to go into, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so we ended up having not that much time overlap to mob. So how do you deal with uh, the scheduling pressure and with giving people the flexibility of uh, arriving whenever it's more, most convenient? Yeah, so uh, I, I say that we do we do have uh, this idea of core working hours where we we kind of say if we're going to be available or not, and um, we have enough team members to collapse down you know mobs and things like that as well. So if if they're, if somebody's by themselves, they can just go and fill in on another mob, um, and and that that thing moves forward at the expense of the other thing. But but as people are out. Um, and, you know, I guess the other thing that I would say to that is also looking at, um, you know, maybe the, not, not necessarily the interview process, but, uh, you know, timing of everything and, and you know, intentionally trying to uh, work with the schedule to make sure that that things are, um, you know, that, that is, so, so like one thing that we try to do is we, we try not to schedule two people in the same mob in an interview. And so, you know, basically what will happen is, you know, they'll go down to three or two people, but the work will still go while they're away for the interview. Um, and our interviews are four hours long, so we lose a four hour block whenever people are out. But, uh, you know, the thing is, is that mobs are very resilient, uh, you know, if, if people are around kind of during the same time. Uh, and so, you know, and if you can't agree on core working hours, it's not, it's not that big of a deal with the idea that as people arrive, they will take on the work that, um, you know, as they gain context and then as people leave, the context continue, can continue forward. Uh, and I think what I've seen is, I've actually seen mobs where by the end of the day, the people working on it, on the task are not the people that started it in the morning. Uh, and, and the work continues on just fine, right? And so I think one big thing about a mob is that the flow efficiency is very high in the sense that something started will will get to its logical end um regardless of who's there and why people are leaving and things like that where, where i think the opposite happens when somebody's not available in in an opposite environment um austin do you have anything to add to that yeah no i think you nailed it that uh you know, the teams can figure it out, right? So some, I've noticed some teams are really, uh, mobs are really uh, resilient to lots of flux. You know what I mean? Like, let's say it's a group of four and in the beginning of the morning, it's just two because two other people are, are in another meeting. And then it's all four people for a couple hours. And one person drops off to join like a, uh, 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 a meeting about test-driven development and they're passionate about that guild or whatever. And so they're off joining that. And now it's down to three. And then the day might end with two people. Um, and so I put in the links a couple stories of teams that are similar uh, teams that I've been on uh, around the world that have, have kind of had that flow where it might be solo programming for an hour and then someone joins and then they review the code of the last hour and then it's pairing and then it turns into a mob. And then after a while, the mob goes back to a pair and then the day ends, you know? So some teams are really totally fine with that style. Other teams really want to establish that kind of core working hours, things that Chris is talking about. So I put in a link to uh, 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 systems thinking fifth discipline type book because um, I, I think I saw a post on Twitter recently that basically the overlap was so tiny. It was almost like, is this even worth it? But the, uh, from what I remember from the, what the person put in the tweet was that everyone in the system knows there's a pain, right? Everyone's meeting at different times and there's always conflicts and everything's out of alignment to, to achieve flow efficiency. So at that point, it may not be like, go with the flow and make it work. It might be like, hey, maybe get the whole system in the room and figure out why everyone is on crazy different schedules and figure out maybe there's some sort of core working hours that we can block off. 
And actually, that actually did occur in one of my mobs, was that the interruption level was so high that we did establish like, hey, we're going to kind of block out the world for this chunk of time so we can have flow efficiency. And then for this chunk of time, we expect people to be pulled in different directions and we expect a little more chaos. So that was an experiment that helped us uh, when we found ourselves in that, in that kind of uh, thing. And uh, I don't know, Chris, is there time for one more question or are we? Yeah, we can go ahead and uh, invite Sven in. Uh, Sven, you, you have the next uh, uh, question here. I don't know if you want to introduce it. Okay, hi, I'm Sven, um, working on Sven about do a bit of everything here and there. Um, the question I have is, as systems grow and get more complex, then you often have dependencies between systems. And then also, if different teams work in different areas, then at some point they say, hey, I want to do something, but it touches three, four other downstream systems. I, I would admit we are good at when you say a team works on their own stuff, that works. But if you have to do stuff which goes across the complete app at some point and you touch the code of multiple other teams, then you tend to get blocked and you need to ask for help. What's your advice or what's a view you have about those as things grow, complexity increases, and then you avoid just getting blocked as I really would like to have our teams get better to remove this pain because then it's also who has a code ownership? Does it travel with the people who mob together, work together? Any tips, guidance, advice? Yeah, um, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why we ended up putting in the, the rule in place of, you know, no one stays on a product for more than two years. Uh, one thing that I think before was a reluctance to do just that, to, to work on um, or, or to allow others to just go in and modify something in someone else's code base. And I think a lot of unit tests and stuff help, you know, so automated tests as documentation, I think is like a really important concept uh, for me. But um, uh, I, I think, you know, in our group of 30 people, which is probably a lot smaller context than you're talking about, um, everybody kind of owns everything. And if there, if there was a dependency and, and it wasn't the top priority of the group working on that, um, then, then that mob would just go in and make the modification to a code base from another product. Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and that might mean extracting things out to a shared library or, or whatever, but, um, you know, and I've seen it happen, you know, a number of times before, and I think that it was less likely once we, before people had established themselves for four years on a team and things like that. Um, and so I think that, you know, as long as you have high quality, um, high test automation, then things, you know, uh, need for code review and stuff like that doesn't really exist be, uh, in, in that, in, in our context when working on other products. And then even to the effect where, um, you know, during kind of like a, a, um, a bout of turnover and other things that were going on, uh, you know, we, we essentially didn't have access to a full mob working on a product. And we just created another mob out of people that we had available. And they had worked on, on those things before. Some of them had worked on those things before, some of them hadn't. And there was still knowledge transfer and there's very little risk around siloing um, so that that ownership is like uh, essentially a, a general kind of company-wide ownership rather than uh, a team owns this chunk of code and no one can come and touch it and things like that. Um, Austin, do you have more to add? Yeah, so I think I'll, since we're down to our last minute, I'll try to be really concise. But I think I'll, I'll name James Shore as someone who I've seen have really good advice on this scenario. And he did a talk at a conference once where he basically took uh, the principles from turning the ship around and applied it to kind of the problem you're talking about. And what he, his, he was basically saying was, you can't, as a leader of a ginormous system with, you know, let's say 100 teams, figure out one solution that'll work for everybody. It's basically, if you come up with one solution, it'll work for 5% and not work for 95%. So the goal was to show up at teams, coach them, give them, empower them, and then ask them, how can you solve this dependency issue? And to give a quick boots on the ground example is I've come across this in, in it between mobs internally, between third party uh, entities where there's dependencies, where there's issues. And the thing we've typically done is almost we've called it mega mob, 
where you basically just get together and figure out, you know, whether it's knowledge sharing, figure out the dependency, come up with an interface and you kind of mob the interface. And it might be a fairly large mob at that point if you're combining, you know, two organizations or two mobs, it might get into the eight or 10. Uh, and to some people, it might just look like a meeting where you're working on something together, but you establish that interface, you figure out that dependency, and then you can kind of go back to your uh, smaller group. And I've seen that work well uh, several times. I'll throw in Thank the you. chat a few resources related to that. Yeah. All right. And I think that's all the time that we have. Uh, and so I don't know if, uh, if we have an outro, uh, maybe from Dragon. Yeah, just wanted to say that it was a really wonderful session, uh, and I'm sure lots of people got value from it. So, yeah, just wanted to thank you, uh, Austin and Chris, for being with us today here. Yeah, it was a thank lot of fun. Much, Thanks, everybody. everybody. It was a pleasure. I appreciate thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Have a good one. Thank you. Bye.